So you guys move from over there to there. Okay, got it. Tracking. <laughs> good morning. God bless you all. So good to see you guys. Oh, what a beautiful day, huh? The Lord's blessed us with. A couple announcements and then we'll jump right in. Um, so I gave an update to first service about the land because I know um, some people have asked because last, if you remember last Wednesday, I asked you guys to pray because we had our hearing um, on Monday and it was at six o'clock. So those that prayed, thank you so much for doing that. That was a blessing. Um, I'll just tell you, we got the variants. Praise God, right? Yeah, the Lord is so good. Uh, but let me tell you about the process because you'll laugh. I've never been part of that zoning where it's, it's like a hearing. It's a legal hearing. And uh, see, so they swear you in. And, you know, Wegmans went before us. Now, I'm from Rochester, New York, originally. And so I know Wegmans. I know Danny, you know, the whole thing. And um, here we are. We're on this thing. And their attorney was, he was a rock star. I mean, he was like, boom, boom. He's asking the questions. He's interviewing the guy. And then he turns around and interviews the sign professional. And I'm like, all this for a sign. I'm like, you know, they're asking. I mean, they must have spent 30 minutes on a sign. I was like, wow, this is, a, this is serious. And it's like the, almost the same identical sign. You know, but I'm watching this. I'm like, wow, you know, and Pastor Steve's next to me and we're sitting there. And we're like, what? So we're thinking, okay. And then it comes to our turn. So I'm like, all right. And our attorney, um, and I expected him to sort of do what, you know, uh, what was done before us. And uh, uh, he did a great job, Jeff. Uh, it was just different. It was like, okay. And so I'm like, and he's like, uh, Pastor Matt, you want to share something? Sure, how are you all today? You know, I was like, what happened to the interview? Like, you're supposed to question, and I'm supposed to go, well, your honor, or whatever. You know, like, I've watched this stuff on the TV. I know how this goes. I can do this. None of that happened. I mean, it was just like, and then after that, it was like, I don't know, I think at three to five minutes, and then, you know, you give it an address. And then um, our engineer, who's supposed to give testimony, because he's the subject matter expert, his name's Ron Sakari, a great guy. He's supposed to give this, he turns around, he drops off the call. I'm not exaggerating. Just drops right off the call. I'm like, because without a subject matter expert, there's no really subject to talk about. So he drops right off the call, and we're like, okay. He calls in. Come to find out later at the township, the guy recognized his phone number. That's the only reason he let him in. Well, we know the reason, the Lord. But he lets him into the call. He turns around, and he's like, uh, sorry about that um, to the chairman. He said, uh, in all my years of all the times doing this, I have never lost power. Neighbors got power. He doesn't have power. Wow. I was like, okay, that's interesting. All right, we're going to be praying through that right at the moment. That seems like, well, okay, we know if everybody's questioning, are we in God's will? We're in God's will because there's attack going on. And I'm sitting there like, well, okay. And so he literally turned around and he, he this, we presented this, they have like exhibits and all this stuff they have to go through the engineer's bill. So he's presenting this. He didn't have this anymore because this was on the computer. And the person that's guiding the computer it has to do it. And so he's, they're like, um, well, uh, Mr. Jakari, this is what we're showing, exhibit one. And he's like, yep. And he just starts talking to it. Like the Lord just, he couldn't see it, but he's talking to it. And he's going through the whole dog. He said this, that, and the other. And I just sat there and I was like, oh my gosh, Lord, this man is, and so he's given all the testimonies, this and that. So then after that, they said, well, what about, you know, have you talked to the neighbors? I said, well, that was the one, praise God, that God, remember, if you guys remember early on, I felt like the Lord said, go to the neighbor and talk to the neighbor. That was the one question that we get asked. Did you actually talk to the neighbors? 
Well, yes, we did. As a matter of fact, Mr. Bromley's on the phone right now. Ray's on the phone. Ray, would you like to say something? They swear Ray in right at that moment. Ray turns around and makes, you know, because at this point I'm thinking, this is not like the Wegmans thing. This, the Wegmans thing was like, this is not, it's not going to end well. This is not going to end well. And, uh, you know, I'm not doubting the Lord, but I just thought, boy, this is, and then I should have known, right? In, you know, our weakness, he is made strong. So I, this is going on, and he turns and uh, he, you know, he says, hey, and it, and it couldn't have been perfect timing. If you know Ray, since over there first service, he turns and he goes, well, you know, I guess I don't have an excuse to be late to church anymore, being that it'll be next door. And every, the whole board started cracking up. And I'm like, all right, Lord, we might be back in this. I don't know. Is this, is this like, because everybody was calmed down at that point. They go into a room. Now, Wegman's room, they went in there were like five minutes, and like, or maybe it felt like five minutes. It was only 10. We're, we're sitting there. I'm texting Ron. Look at Pastor Steve. Is this normal? He's like, I don't know if it's normal. 20 minutes later. They're in a special, separate private room, so all you see on the Zoom is just this white screen. And we're like, <laughs> like, I'm waiting for something to come up and go, you know. <laughs> I'm just sitting there like, and we're, so Ron says, pray. I'm like, that's what I do. <laughs> yes, all the time. I haven't stopped since I saw you guys start to present after the Wegmans people. I've been praying the whole time. I don't know what else to say. They come back on, they say, well, there's a whole lot of debate and discussion, this and that. And then usually when you say that, you're like, oh, no, what's that? And they said, well, we're going to come back and uh, I'm going to motion to prove the variance. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. And then he goes, does anybody want to second it? And I'm like, can I second it? Is that, am I allowed to do that? Because I'll second it right now. And like literally 30 seconds later, somebody else says, I'll second it. And they approve it. And I was, thank you, Jesus. Praise God is right. We're in your will. This is, go okay. So, uh, we have one other meeting uh, for our conditional use, but that's really ordinances. Make sure you meet the ordinances and all that. Uh, tomorrow, I'll be praying. We have this, the Perkin probe going in for the 10.4 acres. It's going to be in the back uh, southeast corner to do the Perkin probe. So that'll go in at 1.30. Pray. Victor Hill's going to be doing that. May pray for him as he's working the equipment and all the people and water and all that. And then the drill welling, the well drill is going to be sometime in the next couple weeks. So just be praying over this. But our last meeting will be May 28th. Um, so please, if you would join me, please be praying for that meeting because that'll be the, that's on a Wednesday night, as a matter of fact. Um, so I'm not going to be able to, uh, to, to attend that. I don't know how that's going to work because I'm going to be up here or I'm going to somehow, maybe I'll have him on there and we can talk if I need to and I can keep teaching, you know. But um, so uh, just be praying. So we're at that point. So we're, we're 39,000 away from our total number that we needed. So if the Lord puts it on your heart, this is the time, right? 39,000. I can't believe how good God is and has gone before us. So this is it. We're there. So if the Lord puts it on your heart, I'll leave that between you and Jesus. But I wanted just to give everybody an update and just say, how big is our God? How big is our God? I'm just watching. I can't. And this is for these days. Well, this morning, we are going to continue our journey uh, in some ways through First Thessalonians, but really through the Bible. Because we're going to be looking, as I mentioned last week, we're going to be doing a series sort of on the rapture. I don't really do series, but I'm, I'm kind of doing it, calling it a rapture series because it's all things raptured. Last week we did our first one. This week we're going to be focusing on the pre-tribulation view or what's called a pre-trib rapture. Next week we'll conclude by going through the other uh, four views. But this week I wanted to spend some time to really go through this with everybody here. In 1 Thessalonians 4, you go back and you can look very clearly. He has a whole lot to say about it. 
Uh, every chapter, he says, with the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians. And particularly in chapter 4, he leaves off in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. He taught the church this. He taught those in Thessalonica, you know, face to face these things. So just comfort one of these things. Remember these things I'm telling you, comfort one another. So these things are really important and fundamental to the church. And I think the timing of the rapture, in my just opinion, is probably the most debated issue in all of eschatology, maybe even within the church. Um, most Christians agree that a rapture will occur, right? But the same is not true when the rapture itself will occur, the timing of it, if I can say. Everybody's vastly different. And I think the key issue is, will the church go through any of or all of the seven-year tribulation before the rapture occurs? Now, this morning, we're going to go through a tremendous amount of passages. So I want to encourage you, on that back there, there's pens and there's notebooks. I want you to come in. I ask you to lay your presuppositions down this morning. I will declare my presupposition. I believe Scripture teaches a pre-tribulation, pre-rapture, you know, pre-trib rapture view. And I really want to encourage all of you uh, to study that and be Bereans. So, because Peter tells us that we need to explain to people why we believe what we believe. We ought to give a defense, as he says. So it's biblically commanded of us to do these things. So I encourage you in the back there, there's pens, there's notebooks, help yourself. Write these things down, come back and study these. But we ought to be able to explain why we believe what we believe in Scripture. And it's not in one isolated area. There's a lot of passages that talk about second coming. So the question, again, I think is more theological uh, and, and certainly not an insignificant debate. Um, there's a great deal at stake. I want everybody to think about that for a moment. If the rapture occurs in your lifetime, your future will be different depending on uh, which view is correct. So view, the view we're going to talk about here of the pre-trib matters, right? Will you be here to see Antichrist? Will you be forced to choose whether or not to take the mark of the beast? Will you witness the carnage of God's wrath poured out on the whole world? Or will you be in heaven during this time, right? Experiencing the glory, the glorious fellowship and the intimacy with the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and his sheep. Will you and I be here for none, half, or all of the tribulation? I think these are the sobering and important questions that we must address here this morning and next Sunday as well. Now, as I mentioned, there are five main perspectives um, that I'm going to go through one of them today for the timing of the rapture. And let's, let me just, ex you know, explain some of these views. It's not all-inclusive, but it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty deep. So I hope not to lose anybody. If you have any questions afterwards, please come and see me. These things are good to study and talk about. The pre-tribulation rapture, pre-tribulationism as it's called, also called the pre-trib view, right, it teaches that the church will be raptured before the seven-year tribulation period begins, right? That's referencing Daniel's 70th week. Please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. We're going to begin there this morning. If we look at Daniel, you'll remember if you've never read Daniel, I encourage you to uh, jump out for the men's study, men. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be getting there pretty soon, but I, I encourage you to uh, read the book of Daniel. It's a powerful book. And in specifically, in chapter 9, um, Daniel talks about his 70th week's prophecy, right? He had been praying for the people, and he had been seeking God in those prayers. And, brought, and God gives him these prophecies, and he talks about these 70th week. Now, there's a beautiful book by Sir Robert Anderson written 
okay? And it's called The Coming Prince. I highly encourage every one of you in here to read that book. I rarely encourage that extra biblically. But what he was able to do is he was able to take the Hebrew calendar and the events, and he's just, uh, to some extent, even a mathematician, and he went back and he just looked at the dates and he just aligned them to the Hebrew calendar. And what was so striking is that the 69 weeks that are laid out, the 70th week to come, when he looked at that and he saw that Christ's first coming, it aligned perfectly on a Hebrew calendar. Surprise, surprise, right? But all the other events, I mean, literally, Solomon, I, I mean, literally, it just it was like this graphical timeline for him. And he sat there and he went, why was I never able to see this? And then even the three and a half years, I mean, all of it is laid out there. It's called, again, The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. It's, it's I don't know, 400 pages. It's a quick read, but um, it's definitely exhaustive. I encourage you to pick that book up. But Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we get a... a picture now of the prince to come. Who is that? In Daniel chapter 9, 27, who's he referring to? He's talking to Antichrist. He's talking about Antichrist, right? Now, please understand in scripture, whenever you see prophecy, and I think most of you know this, there's a near and a far fulfillment, okay? So what we're going to be reading has already happened in a near fulfillment, right? Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled that, and I'll talk more about that. But the far fulfillment is what we're talking about today, the future prophecy. And I'm going to just read verse 27 with you here this morning. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, he's talking to Israel, okay? So this is a covenant to be made by Israel. And if you look back up to verse 26, we know it's the prince that's going to make that covenant. That's the Antichrist as it's being referred to here. So he's going to make this covenant for one week. Now, you might say, what's a one week? What is that? One week equals seven years. Pastor, how do I know that? Please go back and read verses 20 through 25, and you'll be able to understand that he equates one week to one year, okay? So we know seven weeks would be seven years, right? Or in one week, excuse me, I meant to say is seven years, pardon me. It says, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifices and offerings. So what is the middle of seven years? Three and a half years. That's how we've come to that. If you've heard people say, oh, the tribulation, three and a half years, the antichrist, it's Daniel 9, 27. This is where the passage comes from. He says that they're going to bring an end to sacrifices and offerings. Well, isn't that interesting? That ties into our prophecies that we read in Ezekiel chapter 40, talking about in 41, a new temple being built, because without a temple, the sacrifices and the offerings can't happen. So when you read Ezekiel, and as you're adding it to your study notes, write Ezekiel 41 here this morning. Go back and read that and study that, and you'll see that there will be a rebuilt temple and that the sacrifices and everything will, because the Antichrist will walk in and he will desecrate that by claiming to be God himself, right? And when will he do it? We just read here. But in the middle of the week, right? Three and a half years. He's going to go in and desecrate that temple. How's he going to do that? By declaring himself to be God. At that point, the Jews will realize this is not Messiah, right? And they're going to call out to Messiah. What have we done? Jeremiah 31, 31 speaks about a new covenant that they will then enter into. They have not entered into that covenant yet. We have and we're not Jews, but, but as Gentiles, we have entered into that covenant. We've been given new hearts. One day, those that try to say the church has replaced Israel, that's not biblically accurate at all because the church one day will be raptured out and Israel will be left. The church age will be over. And guess what? The great tribulation is going to happen after three and a half years of that. We see this abomination of desolation. We read in other places. And when that abomination of desolation occurs, then they cry out. And in three and a half years, then Messiah comes. Messiah comes. Does that mean that we can actually know the timing of one part of the second 
event, second, second coming? Yes, we can. Did you know that? We don't know the first half. What do you mean, Pastor? I'm not tracking. I'm going to talk a little bit about it when I talk about the pre-tribulation rapture, but I mentioned a little bit last week when I said it's one event with two phases, okay? Now you understand what I'm talking about. Phase one, we don't know because it's like a thief in the night, First Thessalonians 5.2. But the second phase, the physical coming down to earth, Jesus touching down, we'll read Zechariah in a little bit here, Zechariah chapter 14. We'll look at that, and he talks about that. The mountains will split to do that. That's a very di- big difference, okay? We need to be, God is literal. We need to take him literal in these places of Scripture. We don't get the ability to read in our opinions. This is important in our study of Scripture here this morning. But he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the, com- uh, the consum- consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate, the wrath, until the wrath is poured, even as that time has been determined. What else is he saying here in particular? We're saying that if you realize the near-term fulfillment of this, you've all heard of the intertestamental period, maybe, or what we call the, the uh, quiet times in Scripture. It's also been referred to. When you finish Malachi and you go to Matthew in your Bible, it happens in moments with the turning of a page. But some 400 years took place in between Malachi and Matthew, and we call that the intertestamental period. Now, during that interim testamental period, there was a, an attack, a war on Israel in particular by a group of men, and one particular, the Maccabees, okay? And as you know, the Maccabees turned around and decided that they were going to turn around and attack Israel. They're going to desecrate the temple. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the leaders in that movement. And what did he do? He took the blood of a pig, which, as you know, pork, which is really, really good to eat. Um, just want to get that out there, bacon. Um, is, is a desecration to the Jews and to the temple. It's not kosher. And so what happened? He took that blood and he smeared it all over the temple. It desecrated the whole thing. That was the near fulfillment of this, what we just read here. That was actually partially fulfilled from a near fulfillment as prophecy speaks, but the far fulfillment of what will come, the prince, the antichrist, that portion obviously has not happened yet, which is why you don't have to worry about getting the mark right now. Because if there's no beast, there's no mark of the beast, right? Very, very simple. Very, very simple. So there are several arguments that, several arguments that can be sort of leveled against a pre-trib view here. And I just want to talk about a couple of those, and I'm going to talk about what it teaches. First, many allege that it teaches two second comings. You're going to hear people say that. You're a pre-tribber. You, you believe two second comings? No, no. Um, that's not what we're saying, you know, but they'll say uh, two second comings of Christ where the Bible presents only one second coming. I agree. They only, he do, the Bible does present one second coming with two phases or two events of it, I don't, uh, separated by seven years. I think it's very clear, and we're going to see that tonight, this morning. And I'm going to talk, take a few minutes here to go to that. So there's a difference between R and R. I'm not talking about rest and relaxation. I'm talking about rapture and return. Rapture and return, if I can say it that way. Rapture. Harpazo, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Return, right? 2 Thessalonians, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But there's a vast difference between rapture and return, okay? The New Testament describes two two facets of Christ's second coming, okay? Please, well, we looked at this last week, but I encourage you, turn to John chapter 14, verse 3. You'll remember John 14, 3, Jesus Christ very clearly as he was sitting on the cross, even speaking to the people, because there were people around at that point. What did he tell one of the thieves on the cross? He says, today you will be where? 
with me in paradise. He also said that he goes to prepare a place. Now, again, I think at the end of May here, we're going to have a movie coming up called The Coming Wrath. We're going to be showing it here for all of you. We're going to have a movie night. Uh, it's going to be on a Friday. It's already on the church calendar if you've got the church app. I encourage you to, if you don't, download the church app and the Play stores or whatever you do, and it's got a calendar, and, you, and that calendar will automatically sync with your calendar. It'll update, and you can see we have it scheduled uh, where we get to come together. And what that movie actually goes through is it's a documentary, and it interviews um, Jewish people and says, do you know what a Galilean wedding is? And obviously somebody that's Jewish and from Galilee goes, uh, of course we do. This, this is our people. This is what we do. Why are you asking that question? Obviously, it wasn't to stumble somebody, it was to turn around and say, for those of us that didn't grow up Jewish, or those that didn't grow up Jewish and in Galilee, we may not understand how the weddings and Jewish weddings, maybe you've been to a Jewish wedding here, but the, Jewish, the uh, Galilean Jewish wedding was very different in one aspect, and that has to do with the timing of when the father would give permission to the son to go get the bride. In the other parts of the Jewish wedding, there wasn't that aspect. You could go and the son would talk about it sometimes. But in the Galilean tradition, that wasn't so. The, ch the sons, the groom, the, the, they would all gather. They would sleep in one room because they never knew. It could be up to a year, year or more. Nobody knew the time. But one day the father would wake up in the middle of the night or whatever time during the day, and he would just say, son, go get your bride. Because only the father knew. So when we read these passages, when Jesus talks about, he says, I go to my father's house. I, I, I go to heaven. He goes, and I prepare these mansions. I build these buildings. That where I go to one day, you will come. He goes, I go to prepare a place for you. If it was not so, I would not say it to be so. Very, very important what he's declaring there. Jesus Christ, to those that were Galilean, or those that were primary, because Jesus was from the Galilee, those disciples and apostles, they were from the, they understood exactly what he was saying. Oh, like our wedding tradition, like our wedding, that you're going to come again, Lord. You're going to come again and take us to, to you. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. Oh, okay, why did he want to tell them that? So that it brought great hope, because Jesus Christ not conquering the Romans at that time was not part of their plan, right? Because the Old Testament scripture does mention that the time when Messiah will come and he will over, you know, he will dominate the oppression of the nations. But that was not the first coming, right? As a matter of fact, that's not even the first phase of the rapture. It's through the second coming when he actually will do that and he'll judge those nations. So John 14, 3. And then if you look in 1 Thessalonians, uh, again, chapter 4. And if you look at uh, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from, what? Heaven, that means he's got to be there first, got it, with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Very specific. Who will die, who will raise, who will be raised first? Say it with me, the dead in Christ. This isn't for everybody, is it? This isn't talking about unbelievers. This isn't talking about Old Testament saints. This is specifically talking about, we talked about that last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to that study. This is talking about the dead in Christ. God's not grammatically challenged. He means what he says, and he says what he means. Those in Jesus Christ that have passed away. This is very, very important. Because he says the dead in Christ. He, Christ himself ring fences who this is. That he is going to come for his church, okay, 
because we know that, right? But the dead in Christ is going to rise first, and then we, if we're part of that generation of the rapture, we're going to be translated in a moment, as 1 Corinthians 50 teaches, in a twinkling of an eye. Okay, so that's the first phase, right? But the second, he says, is he's going to come with his saints, and he descends from heaven to judge his enemies. So what did we just read here? Does he say he's coming to judge his enemies right now? No, he's coming to kid his saints, and he's going to, what, John 14, 3, where is he going to take them? Home. Because there's houses that are prepared for all of us that when we go to be with him, right? That's clearly what he's saying here, okay? We can't mix that. Now, turn to Zechariah chapter 14, please. Hopefully what you see we're doing here is we're studying the whole counsel of God. This isn't just looking at the New Testament. This isn't just looking at certain scriptures. We're looking at a majority of these scriptures. Whatever view you decide to hold out of the five views, it must be in a harmony with the word of God. It cannot take one of these passages and then say, well, that one doesn't count or I can't explain that one. No, there should be a nice, genuine harmony. Otherwise, we have a real problem with the word of God because then we have what's called contradiction. And we know that God, because he inspired this word to be written through the Holy Spirit, will never, ever contradict himself. As a matter of fact, it would cause us not to trust the word of God. Please understand what we're talking about here and how significant this is. Zechariah chapter 14, look with me please here. Uh, let's look at verses 4 and 5. Allow me to start at verse 1 just because we're there already together. He's talking about the day of Lord, Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. This is the period he's talking about, right? Actually at the end of it, as a matter of fact, he's going to say it. So that's not the same thing as the harpazo. You understand the rapture happens first. That's the first event, first phase. This is the second event, second phase of the one, if you can say the second coming, if I can say it that way. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. We all understand what he's talking about there because he calls it the day, of the, the day of the Lord and it's called the same thing in the New Testament. And your, soul, and your spoil will be divided in the midst. We know it is Jacob's trouble in our Old Testament predominantly as well. For I will gather all the nations. No, what is he doing? He's gathering himself to go to his father's house? No, what's he say here? Please underline this in your scripture. To the battle. Who? Against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. That's Revelation 19, right, when he comes. And he fights in the day of that battle. We come with him, by the way. And you can look at Revelation 19 for that. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Please notice the difference here. He is not saying that he is in the air and he's catching us up to the air. He says he's physically doing what? coming down. He is touching terra firma, earth. That's why I'm asking you to write these notes down. They're vastly different and distinct, these two comings, or these, the second coming with these two events. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem in the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. Just think about how difficult that is. Normal geographic, I mean, you're, you're talking mountain, normal um, geography with north to south, but he's saying he's going to cut it east to west making a very large valley, and that's where that battle's going to occur. Half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north and the half of the mountain towards the south. Have you ever seen something like that happen? He separates it even east to west, and yet it moves north to south? Hmm. That's supernatural. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, okay, that area that's in between, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azil, and yes, you shall flee, and you shall, as you fled from the earthquake in those days, Uzzah king of, of um, 
uh, Judah, and that's if you remember, that's uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter thirty-five. He's talking about. If you want to see more of that, we can make a margin in your Bible when he's comparing Isaiah, king of Judah. He's talking about back to Isaiah thirty-five and what had happened. Remember, near and far fulfillment. So clearly, what we read here is this isn't a catching up, is it? What we're reading here is it? No, it's there to flee. That sounds awful familiar to another passage we read in our New Testament. He says that he doesn't want them to go up to their housetops. He doesn't want to go back in and grab clothes or anything like that. He wants them to flee to the, to the hills, to get out of Dodge, right? He wants them to get out of Dodge and quickly. Two different things, isn't it? It's not a catching up or a catching away. It's a run for your lives. When you see this mountain split, run for your lives. And he's talking to those in Israel, okay? Very, very important. Go back to your New Testament, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We see it in light in 1 Thessalonians 3 too, because 4 is talking, obviously, the first section there, verse 17, he's talking about the harpazo. But if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and you look at verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with, who's coming with him? All his saints. Are we his saints? How do we come with him if we're not up with him? Hmm, that's interesting. If we're fleeing and running, how do we come back with him if we're fleeing and running? If we're going to go through the church, the church is going to go through the Great Tribulation. All right, maybe, maybe we'll get to that. Maybe we'll table that, right? That's just weird. That's a, maybe it's just an irregularity in Scripture. No. Scripture never contradicts Scripture. Okay, so that's just one aspect. So how, how can these, both these facets be true of the second coming? You see, I, I believe pre-tribulationism, or what we call pre-trib, is the only, if I can call it view, it's really not as biblical, but I'll call it a view here this morning, is the only possible view that resolves a seeming what we would call a contradiction. The first facet of what I've been referring to, as you've heard this morning, is the rapture. And, and you know it that way. The harpazo is the Greek word. The Lord takes his believers from this earth to his Father's house. We read that already in John 14, 3. The second facet is also commonly called the second coming of Christ, when technically, really, the second coming is the whole event. It's just two phases, right? But the believers return to Christ from heaven to the earth. Let's look at that more. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, please. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. This is in light of the coming of the Son of Man. If you remember quickly, back in chapter 24, verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us what will these things be, and what, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? He asked him a very specific question. He didn't say, when are you going to rapture us? Because they didn't understand that yet. That wasn't prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. But Messiah coming and establishing a millennial reign, a kingdom, that has been, and that was prophesied. That's actually one of the important differences as well, by the way. But that's what the disciples and apostles asked him. And Jesus Christ gave him an answer. And if you forward to verse 30, well, let's back up to verse 29 of chapter 24. Immediately after the tribulation, just so you know when we're talking about, he says, after the, what? 
tribulation. Daniel's week says that that time, Jacob's trouble, the Lord's, um, basically the coming of the Lord like that. He said that that time was how many weeks? One week. One week equal to how many years? Seven years. At the end of what? Nine, Daniel chapter 9, 27. At the end of that will be the desolation, right? Well, he's going to desolate it three and a half years in, he said. But at the end of that, I meant to say is the coming of Christ. Pardon me. Forgive me. That's what he said there. Well, that's what it says right here in chapter 24, 29. It's just like it was prophesied from Daniel. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Please underline that. There's signs, there's wonders, there's things that are going to happen. They're going to see. It says that they see the nation, see? And it says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see, please underline this, the Son of Man coming. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says that what? It's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye, 200 milliseconds. Can you see anything by the time you blink and reopen your eyes? You cannot, nor can I. So they will see the man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will go in. Ooh, that's interesting. He'll send who? He'll send himself. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17 says Jesus is coming. But here we read at the actual second coming of Christ, it says, no, his angels are the one that are going to be gathering. I wonder if that's coincidental too. He says they're going to gather from the elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You can, you can detect my satire, but it's because... We cannot turn around and ignore what Scripture teaches. We, we take literal every other aspect of Scripture unless there's a simile or a metaphor. But for some reason, when we get to end times eschatology, everybody wants to sort of get loosey-goosey with the Word of God. They don't want to take Revelation serious. They don't want to take Daniel. They don't want to take Ezekiel. They, they don't want to take the Scriptures in Matthew 24 when Jesus Christ spoke it out of his own mouth, physically manifested 2,000 years ago on this earth. I don't understand. It doesn't compute for me. We must take these things uh, literal because God is not saying, well, it'll be like, and it could be this. You see, the real thing here is that both describe the Lord's coming. That's what we just read this morning. But there are differences, and specifically, the only way to accomplish this is two unique stages occurring at two separate times, right? And between these two stages, uh, the tribulation happens, right? We know that the tribulation happens because he says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, so we know that there's a separation there. But Daniel said the same thing because the breaking of the covenant in Daniel 9.27 said it would be right in the middle. So you have before that, where we're out of here, the church is raptured out. Call me an escapist. You'd be correct biblically because we all are, and God is as well for the church. And then seven years later, after the tribulation, that's what that means, Daniel 70 weeks, seven years, he's going to do what? He's going to come back again, but he's going to come to do something different. The first time he comes to do John 14, 3, to take us to our father's house. The second time he comes to bring judgment. You, do you understand? There's a vast difference and then establishes millennial kingdom because the wrath of God has been poured out during those seven years. Revelation chapter 6, verse uh, 1 through Revelation chapter 19. He says that the rapture is the imminent signless, by the way, and could occur at any moment. How do we know that? Because I can read First Corinthians or First Thessalonians. You can hold your finger here, real quick. If I go back to First Thessalonians, chapter one, if I look at verse ten, he tells me the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, says, 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he's raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. He says it right there. So I know this to be true. I know that that wrath is going to be poured out for seven years, but the first stage is the rapture, right? And it's signless. Because if I read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2, I'll look at it in a minute, it says that he's a thief in the night. Now, last I checked when, and I pray this never happens to anybody here, but if a burglar was going to break into your house, he doesn't call around 7 o'clock and say, is 9.30 good if I come break in? Does that work for you? I would like to schedule it in there. I know you're busy, you got bed, and you got to work the next morning. So if we could schedule this, that would be... No, it's signless. There's no... But yet we read in Matthew 24, 30 that you're going to see, all the nations are going to know, they're going to see, and there's other passages like that too. That's a contradiction. If the second coming is one event with one phase, that's a contradiction. We must acknowledge that. The Bible would be wrong. I stand up here before you, and the Bible would be wrong if I understood it any other way. Because it would basically say that he's supposed to be seen by people and not be seen by people. You, you, those are mutually exclusive. He also said that it wasn't for all nations. It was only for those that are in Christ Jesus. Again, mutually exclusive. So either my Bible's wrong or man's interpretation is wrong. And that the second coming of Christ happens in two phases. The rapture first and then the second coming after. Seven years. It's the only explanation. I mean, we're going to look at the other views. God bless you. We're going to look at the other four views, but I just... I want you be Bereans, you judge. Now, the second coming, on the other hand, right, is preceded by all kinds of signs, labor pains. Remember that? Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 29. There's all these labor pains and signs and warning, yet the rapture is sinless, or signless, excuse me. Again, as I said, the same, <laughs> the same event can't be both signless and also proceed in numerous signs. It's contradictory. And it's difficult for any other view that you will read to harmonize these two passages. They can't do it. Only a pre-tribulation biblical scriptural view can do that. Um, it's the only one that can ha harmonize these two descriptions of Christ's coming. Now, there are some students of the Bible, right, that strongly object to the notion of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ as two distinct events. There are some that will challenge that, right? Whether they want to call themselves post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, you know, they've got a lot of names. We're going to go through them over the weeks, or excuse me, over this Sunday, I meant next Sunday. They contend that uh, the Bible teaches that there's not two future comings of Christ, but only presents it as one event. I think we also agree that the second coming is the second coming with two phases. I think it's all how you're defining that. I think on the contrary, I believe scripture teaches that Jesus Christ's coming is a single event with two stages, as I've been saying, and they're separated by at least seven years, during which the tribulation happens. Now, the only definitive way to fully resolve this issue and what the Bible says is to look at these events side by side, and I'm going to do that with you this morning, to see if they're describing the same phase. Kevin, will you go ahead and put up on these two screens, these scriptures, please? It's the only definitive way to resolve it. I want you to be the judge. I want you to lay your presuppositions this morning down. You may be pre-trib. Lay it down for a moment. You may be post-trib. Lay it down for a moment. Just let the word of God speak. And let those who have eyes and ears hear and see what the word of God has to say. Again, you be the judge. The first one. I'm going to look at the column I've put together called the rapture. I'm going to look at the other column put together. It's called the return of the second coming. 
Both of these passages are listed out, but I want you to understand that these are mutually exclusive. I think that's what scriptures teach, the scriptures teach. Christ comes in the air. We just read that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, yeah? Yet, when we read Zechariah 14.4, what did it say? He's going to physically touch terra firma, come down, the mountain's going to split in two. Can you be in the air and touch down at the same time? No. No, those are two separate events. Those are two different things. They're not talking about the same thing. The next one, Christ comes for his saints. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. He's to do what? Take us back. Remember, John, take us back to our father's house, places where he's built for us to come. The Galilean wedding is an example. However, we read in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, and I'd like to take you to another place. Go to Jude. Jude, which go to Revelation and go back one book. And I'd like you to look at Jude with me. Jude chapter 1, verse 14. There's only one chapter in Jude, so. Jude chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. If you've gone to Revelation, you've, you've gone too far, although you sort of didn't. <laughs> For what we're talking about, it'd be apropos. Um, but look at Jude 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Who's the Hagios? Who's the saint? We are. Those in Christ Jesus, we're the saints. Okay? It's always been defined that way in Scripture. Let's look at verse 15. Now, why is he coming? Is he coming to take them home, as it said in John? No, that's not what it says here. Look what it says in verse 15 in your Bibles. Jude chapter 1, verse 15, it says to execute judgment. That's a different purpose too, isn't it? He's coming with a different purpose. One is to take us home, that's the rapture, and the other one is to bring judgment. They can't be the same thing. He says, on all. Please notice that, on all. Jude 1.14 says, on, or 15, on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That sounds to me a lot like the proceeding of the great white throne judgment because the wrath has been poured out and he's coming to judge. He's not coming to bring home. That's not a comfort one another with these words as he left off in 1 Thessalonians, right? Clearly two different events. The believers depart the earth. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Unbelievers are where? Taken away, Right? And that's in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 31. I'm already there. I'll read it to you. But as the days of Noah, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know that the flood had come and took them all away. So will also be the coming of Son of Man be, that the two men will be in one field, one will be taken away, the other left. You, you get the point. You can keep reading, right? He's talking about how they're going to, be taken away. Look at two women will be grinding, one in the one in the mill, and the other one will be taken, the other left. He then tells them to watch, be therefore, right? Christ comes under the rapture to claim his bride. Under the second coming of the judge, as we would know it, he comes from not only judgment, but he comes with his bride. 
It can't be both ways. These are two different events. You can't do both at the same time. Christ gathers his own, right? Remember 1 Thessalonians 14, 16, those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet, when we looked at Matthew 24, do you remember when I said verse 31? I pointed that out to you guys earlier. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Sorry, he's going to send who? Angels. Jesus is not an angel. Hebrews clearly defines that for us. This is not, one of these events has Jesus coming for his people. The other event has an angel coming. These are two different things again. Which one is it? Is it Jesus or the angels? Well, it only makes sense if it's two different events. Otherwise, once again, scriptures, we got a problem. We got a problem. That's what I mean when I say, again, forgive me, when I say that when we study this throughout the counsel of God, you really can't come to any other perspective in view. When you take all of these scriptures in, if you take one or two, like just 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, or you just took in um, 2 Thessalonians, you get, you know, the second coming. But if you take the whole counsel of God, you can't help but arrive at this place. Otherwise, you have contention within the word. You don't have harmony of the word. That, that's, a, that's a big deal, isn't it? I'm so grateful that God was exhaustive in his ability to give us this many scriptures that we can understand, that we don't have to wonder, that we don't have to fear, but that we can do exactly as Paul has exhorted, is comfort one another. I want to comfort you here this morning. That's why I'm reading these. I want to comfort you. You're not going to go through the wrath if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. We're going to be raptured out. I want to comfort you with those things. God wants to comfort us with these things, right? Look, continue on. Uh, Christ comes to reward. 1 Thessalonians 4.17, right? But in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, we read that he comes to judge. And I think this is one of the biggest things, and it, it always was striking to me. Why is there not a single passage in the Old Testament that describes the rapture? And until I looked at 1 Thessalonians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians, I meant to say, you know, when I was a young believer in Christ and I was studying these things and, you know, I really wanted to understand these. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I really struggled with that. Why is it not mentioned? Lord, you mentioned so much in the Old Testament. You talk about the physical coming of Messiah, second coming, where he's going to touch down on earth. Zechariah, we already talked about. You mentioned uh, Jacob's trouble and the seven-year trouble. All of that is prophesied. Why is the rapture not prophesied? And then one day I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's just the, the Lord, and he, I read verse 51, and it, it clicked for me. Look at verse 51 in chapter 15. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. He says, I give you revelation, something that wasn't known, but now has been made known. Oh boy, that makes sense now. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die. But we all shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will raise incorruptible and shall be changed. That's exactly what 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 say. Nobody debates that's a harpazo, a rapture uh, text. Nobody does. Not, not even those that argue post, mid, or whatever. Nobody debates because the word harpazo in the Greek is there. 
So you can't deny it. It's different from parousia, which is the second coming in the Greek, touching down. Nobody can deny that. Literally, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a Greek scholar, you go to that, you look at it, there's no, it's beyond contestation. The Greek is there. The Greek is there. So the question becomes, what's the problem? What's the problem here? Well, that makes sense because when in verse 51 says, I'm going to tell you a mystery now, I'm going to bring revelation to you. What you didn't, what once was hidden from you has now been what? Revealed. Christ said those things when he came to earth too. Remember that? He was revealing things that the, the, the religious leaders at that time had no idea what true love really meant because they would strain an at. They would do all these other things. They'd let their neighbor fall in a ditch and die, but they'd pull their own animal out on a Shabbat, on a Sabbath, because they didn't understand Christ's love nor his word. They interpreted it through a lens in which they saw fit that drew people to them and not to Jesus. Would be to God that would never, ever happen again. Would be to God for that. So that explains why there's no sign of it uh, in your Old Testament. Yet it's predicted often in the New Testament, right? Um, please notice also with the raptures we've been talking about this morning, there are no signs. It's imminent. It can happen any moment before I finish here. Right now it could happen. Yet in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 29, as we've already read, it's going to come with many signs and nobody's going to be able to ignore it. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, or even 17 and 18 rather, it it comes as a time of blessing and comfort. Comfort one another, right? Yet, when we look at 2 Thessalonians, since you're already over there, if you wouldn't mind just turning to 2 Thessalonians, getting a little bit ahead, we haven't read 2 Thessalonians yet together, but maybe you've read it devotionally or you've been taught 2 Thessalonians. If you look at um, chapter 2, I'm going to draw your attention to verses 8 through 12. And then the law also will be revealed to whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. He's talking about the Antichrist. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who shall perish because they did not receive the love of the what? Truth. That they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Clearly, that's not comfort. That's coming to bring judgment, destruction, wrath. John 14, 1 through 3 says, you will be with me, as he said to the thief. He didn't say it to both thieves, but he said to the one, he says, you will be with me. Because he, the other one turned around and says, well, how could you... You're blaspheming. How, this is God. What has he ever done wrong? We deserve our judgment as we're being crucified, but this man has done nothing wrong. He believed in Jesus, and he believed. And because of that, in that moment, he was saved. And that's why Jesus said, today you'll be with me. It wasn't next year, next week, or it wasn't like a little holding tank, like a you know, purgatory thing. No, today you will be with me in paradise. So we see passages like that. And again, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 1 Thessalonians 4 through 18. We've already read that. That's, that's important as well. It's, it involves believers only, those dead in Christ or those alive in Christ. But it's not for unbelievers. Yet when we read in Matthew 24, 1 through 25, 46, it involves Israel primarily 
but then some of the Gentile nations as well, because he says he'll gather the nations, okay? So we're even talking about two different groups of people here, the saints and the born-again believers, and now we're talking about the unbelievers at the second coming, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Do you you see that? There's two different people groups. As I mentioned already, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, it'll happen with a twinkling of an eye, right? Nobody's going to see it. It's, it's going to occur in a moment. Yet we read in Matthew 24, verse 27, and also I'll just turn quickly to Revelation 1, 7 to read that for you. Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him. Everybody got that? Every eye will see him. There, there's no misinterpreting that. Every eye will see him means every eye will see him, okay? And they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. And then he says, amen, and so be it. So clearly we see two different groups there as well, right? Those who pierced him, right? Well, you could say that was all of eternity, you know, all of us in humanity, but the reality is they're seeing them with their eyes. Yet we just read in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, it's in a twinkling of an eye. They can't be both ways. Twinkling eyes, 200 milliseconds. You can't see that. If I ask you to do this really quick, close your eyes and open them, right? In the moment of time, by the way, you, when you do that, um, that's not as fast as the natural. You know, when you blink, you don't even realize you blink, right? I mean, you do it autonomically most of the times during the day. You're not even realizing you're doing it. You don't see like a black screen and then it comes back white or gray or blue or whatever you paint color you got on the wall, right? No, because it happens so quick. That's exactly what the rapture is going to be like. It's so quick. There is no time of perception until you're with Jesus caught up in the air. There is no perception time to evaluate, oh my gosh, what's going on? So that's why you can't see it. Yet we read for the second coming that every eye is going to see. So clearly, again, two different events. When does it begin? We read even early on that in 1 Thessalonians, we also read in 1 Corinthians that it begins at the end, right, before the tribulation begins, actually. Because it's what ushers in the tribulation. It ends the church age when the hand of God is removed because the Holy Spirit is removed because the church is with his bride. And then when does it begin, the second coming? When does Christ physically come back with his saints again? We already talked about he would do that. And that's when the millennial begins. And we come down to minister. And we remember we read the sacrifices, Zechariah, the sacrifices will be taken away. That's at the end of the tribulation. We read that in scripture already. Revelation 22.16 says he comes as a, what, a bright morning star. Malachi 4.2 predicted, prophesied that he would come as a son of righteousness. These are fundamentally two different events. And to try to put them into one event is unbiblical. It violates all standards of hermeneutics, context, timing, resources, purpose, All of that, you must throw it all away to try to harmonize this unless you see a second coming with two phases, a rapture and then a return with Christ in Revelation 19 to judge the earth. Now, Dr. John Wolvord concludes, he's a scholar, an end times prophecy scholar, just may or may not have heard of him, that the translation of the church is an event quite different in character and time from the return of the Lord to establish his kingdom and can confirms the conclusion that the translation takes place 
before the tribulation. That's when we read these passages, that's where he arrives. How many of you heard of John MacArthur? Some of you have heard of John MacArthur. Summarizes his point as well, saying scripture suggests that the second coming occurs in two stages. First, the rapture when he comes for his saints and then are caught up to meet him in the air. Verse Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 through 17. And the second is return to earth when he comes with his saints, as we read in Jude chapter 1, verse 14. What's he coming to do? Remember that again? To execute judgment against his enemies. So going back to what we read in, in the Old Testament in Daniel this morning, where we kind of started in Daniel 9.27, that period has to be how many years? Say it, please. You read the passage I did too. Daniel 9.27 said it was seven years. It was, a, it was his 70th week, right? One week equals seven years. So what we have learned here this morning, biblically, is that wherever you fall on this, that at the beginning of this, the church age, right, rapture starts, seven-year window clock starts. Three and a half years into that, what's going to happen? We read that too, didn't we? In Daniel chapter 9, 27, the abomination of desolation, because that's right in there. And then another three and a half years, what's going to happen after that? I'm sorry, what? His second coming, you're right. You're absolutely right, the second coming. So let me ask you a question. If you know when the rapture is, do you know when the second coming of Christ is? Yes, you do. So when people say that no one knows the time or the hour, how can that be true if we're talking about the same event without two phases? It can't be. What can't we know? What event occurs as a thief in the night? Right? Which in the Greek is called the harpazo. The parousia, let's use the Greek terms to be accurate, that's the second coming physical dearth. How long after the harpazo, according to Daniel, the prophet? Seven years. You are prophecy scholars. All you did is read your Bible. That's all I did is read my Bible with you. I mean, 400, 500 page books. We just got to look up scripture. We just read everything in harmony and context. It's so great before us because he didn't mean to stump us. He wanted to comfort us and encourage us. And that's why that I argue that the second coming is a single event with two phases, at least seven years apart. Again, now, what are some of the most common objectives, right? Now, now we're going to turn with the remaining time we have left in our service here this morning. I'm going to make you apologists this morning. Well, God's going to do that. I'm going to get out of the way. You know what an apologist is, right? Apologetics. So if you look at the pre-trib rapture, right, there's, you might say, a straw man argument. And what is a straw man argument? Some of you have heard it because you've been pre-trib and you've, you believe that. Again, I want you to lay your presuppositions down. Maybe you're not pre-trib this morning. Maybe you're going to end up post-trib. But let's say for right now, but what we went through in Scripture and the harmony of Scripture and all the passages we just looked like, it led us to a pre-trib conclusion that it's possible. Well, not only possible, but it's biblical, actually. But let's just pause that for a minute. <laughs> what do you think, if the Bible has all these things to say, and it's so apparent, what do you think that somebody could come and try to argue to shoot down Scripture or to shoot down this Bible? What have they done in every other compartment, whether it's creationism, creation, yom, six little, you know, seven little days, six little days, when we see Genesis, right? What about when we tack, uh, tackle certain aspects of the doctrine of our faith, sortism, right, salvation, different things like that? What do they always try to come in and tack? Well, 
people didn't believe that in the early church, right? Where, where do you find that? What, did the first church believe that? You know, because they can't argue biblically because the Bible says that. So what do they try to do? Well, other people didn't believe it, so we shouldn't either. Well, I don't really care what other people believe. What is Jesus taught? What is Jesus teach? I mean, we get in a whole lot of trouble if I follow what other people believe. I mean, my mother taught me at a very young age, if somebody else jumps off a bridge, are you going to jump off? I mean, even my mom got it, right? So at the end of the day, it's biblical, right? What does the Bible have to say? What does Jesus have to say? But let me entertain this from an apologetic perspective this morning because there are answers, and they have, those have developed within the last five years. I love when we get updates, you know, whether it's archaeology or different findings of Scripture, especially as we start to archive more of these writings that are out there with computers and different things. We can search these things, and, it, you know, they can go out and find these writings that we didn't even know existed because maybe they haven't been uncovered in hundreds and hundreds of years. So hopefully what I'm about to share with you this morning is, is relatively new but exciting when somebody comes up with the straw man argument that says, uh, and let me give it to you right now. You've probably heard it. Uh, you know, this pre-trib view didn't arrive till 1830, right? Uh, through the ministry and teaching of an Irish brethren, pastor, man, right, whatever you want to call him, preacher, and his name was John Nelson Darby. And this started in 1830. So if this was true, why weren't they talking about this at the time of Jesus. And I'm like, wait a minute, he did. It's in our Bible. Oh, yeah, you mean why aren't other men? Okay, okay, I'm sorry, just let me track with you. Extra biblically, why weren't they talking about that? And we use the word extra biblically, we mean outside of canon, outside of inspired word of God. The reality is they were. We did not know it. We were looking and we were searching, and, you know, last few years we were like, hmm, that's a good point, but it's not a real argument, but it's a good point. If the rapture was biblical, it would have appeared earlier in church history, right? That's how the argument goes. And again, until recently, this was largely unanswered. You know, maybe the last five years, maybe I'm stretching it, maybe it's seven. But in the last several years, the pre-1830 pre-trib statement has been discovered. And there are three main stanzas I would like to show you this morning. And I pray you'll look at these things, write these things down, and go and pull them up. Because when someone comes up to you to say why you believe what you believe, you're going to give them the notes from your here, the message this morning from the Word of God. And then when they turn around and say, oh, I went and I researched that, because what they did is they went and Google, and they said, hey, pre-rapture, is this real? And then you're going to say, oh, but this is what's wrong with it. And what they're going to say is, this man, in 1830s, the soonest we have of everything. Then you could turn around and give them the next set of notes, which I'm about to give you right now. There's a document called Pseudo or Pseudo Ephraim right? Um, and it's from Ephraim the Syrian. Again, extra biblical, not canon. I want to be very clear on this. Not the word of the Lord, as we would understand it, given through the Holy Spirit and put together. It's extra biblical evidence of a pre-tribulation rapture position, and it surfaced early in the medieval period in a sermon entitled, On Our Last Times, The Antichrist, The End of the World, and The Sermon of the End of the World. The sermon is attributed to, again, Ephraim the Syrian, but most scholars believe it was a product of known as someone as pseudo-Ephraim. This powerful sermon was written sometime between the 4th and 6th centuries. We're talking 300s, 400s, 500s. Early, early church history. I'm going to read it to you this morning. You see if it sounds familiar to what we just described or what the Bible just described as a pre-tribulation view of the rapture. I'll let you be the judge. We ought to understand thoroughly, therefore, my brothers, what is imminent and overhanging. Why, therefore, do we not reject every care of earthly actions 
and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he may draw us from the confusion which overwhelms all the world. For all the saints of the elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation. Let me just let that hang out there for a minute. Before the tribulation, 400, 500 AD, early, early on, which is to come and are taken to where? The Lord, we already knew that because of John, but he records that as well, in order that they might not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sins. Does that sound like a pre-trib view to you? Sure does to me. According to scholars, Tommy Ice and uh, Timothy DeMay, pseudo-Ephraim clearly represents at least three principles, right? There's two distinct comings, right? Uh, the return of Christ, the rapture of the saints, followed by Christ's second advent to earth. We can read just by reading that. A defined interval between the two comings in case of, this case, three and a half years, right? Clear statement of Christ will remove the church from the world before the tribulation. According to Tommy Ice, this statement Evidence is a clear belief that all Christians will escape the tribulation through a gathering of the Lord and is stated early in this sermon. How can this be understood as anything but a pre-trib historical narrative? I don't understand. Uh, do you realize that, um, remember I mentioned John Nelson Darby, 1830? Even if you go on the latter end of this, this was written a thousand years before this man breathed on this earth. A thousand years. Even if you go in the 800s, a thousand years. This isn't a new idea. In 80, you know, well, in AD 1260, another one, Jard Sangorello founded a group known as the Apostolic Brethren in Northern Italy. At that time, it was against the church to form any new type of ecclesiastical movement or order. So the ap apostolic brethren was subjected to severe persecution. You know what that means. Martyrdom. In 1300, he was burned at the stake. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you because a brother, Delcino, took over the order. But what this man did is this man went against the church at that time that was teaching in Latin and didn't believe Bibles should be in the hands of their people. They would turn their backs as they would orate the word of God. And you weren't allowed to see it. It was done in Latin, not even in common language of the people of that day. You might know what diocese or religion that is. I actually grew up in that religion, to be transparent. Many of you don't know that, but I grew up Roman Catholic. And when I was young, I can remember our priest at one point did turn and he would do the eulogy in Latin. And I remember just being told I was to sit there and I was to do this, but never to speak out loud because I didn't understand what was being said. You also understand the Reformation. You understand Luther and what was so pivotal about the Reformation was that the idea behind that was, what does the word of God say? Romans was pivotal for, for Luther. But we're, we're back in 801260. We're hundreds of years before Luther. Why don't we hear about this man? What he did is he stood up against the mainstream religion of that time. And uh, this gentleman by the name of Brother Delcino took over. And under his leadership, it grew thousands because Christ kept adding. And he had an important teaching, right? He died in 1307, and in 1316, an anonymous notary of the Diocese of Vercelli in northern Italy wrote a brief treatise in Latin 
that set forth the deeds and beliefs of this apostolic brethren. Now, now it's not surprising that that was in Latin because they were in Italy, right? So that would make sense. So I'm, I, I have this translated for you here from Latin to English. Um, I'm going to read it to you this morning. Delcino believed and preached and taught that within the three years, Delcino himself and his followers will preach the coming of the Antichrist. In other words, he was coming that he was saying that Antichrist could come at any time because obviously Jesus is coming. And that the Antichrist was coming into the world within the bonds of the said three and a half years. And if he had come, that Delcino and his followers would be transferred into paradise, just like John said in which Enoch and Elijah, I should say 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Can you remind me, we talked about it last week, Enoch and Elijah, they were translated. They were, one of, they were two of six that we receive in Scripture. Out of the six, five of six were translated to where? Heaven. Only one was translated where? A physical location approximately 20 miles away as we read in our New Testament. So the majority of the times we see the word translation, rapture used in Scripture, is it to another physical locale on earth? Or is it to heaven? It's to heaven, even if you look at your Old Testament scriptures of this. And he quotes in here, Enoch and Elijah. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about a rapture. He knew the word translation. He certainly understood the Hebrew. And in that way, they would have preserved unharmed, that's pretty convincing, from the persecution of the Antichrist. What do we talk about that? That's escaping the wrath, right? And that Enoch and Elijah themselves would descend on the earth for the purpose of the preaching. When is that? During the Great Tribulation, we read that he believed Revelation when they send the two. Very good, very good. Then they would be killed um, by him or by his servants, said the Antichrist would reign for a long time, but when Antichrist is dead, they'll see no himself, who would be the Holy Pope, as preserved his followers, will descend on earth and will preach the right faith of Christ to all and will convert those who will be living to the true faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to return with Jesus. He's going to minister. What do we call that? The second coming, the parousia. So again, several points in this, uh, but this is a pre-rapture theory. And again, this was the, two, the true church, the true word of God, in contrast to the Roman uh, Catholic church at that time. And I'm, just, I'm simply pointing that out, not knocking anybody else, but I'm um, just pointing out that sometimes when we, we read the word of God, we, 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 have, we are faced with that idea of man's wisdom and God's truth, and we have to make a decision between the two. And it's really, really hard, right? It shouldn't be. But some of that is, 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 is caught up in tradition, how we, maybe some of us grew up here you know, this morning. Maybe you grew up in, as a Roman Catholic. Maybe you grew up uh, as a Mormon. Maybe you grew up some other way, and you've come to Christ, and you could have come to Christ as a Roman Catholic, but then you started reading the Word of God, and everything changed for you. Everything changed for you. And you started understanding these truths. And it's like, what do you do with that? How, how do you live now? And that's what we've begun doing is we've begun studying our word of God to let the word of God speak and not man's tradition speak, not rituals and religion. It's become about relationship. You see, it's something really special that happens when you open the word of God and read it. And the last person I'll leave you with this morning, his name's Morgan Edwards. How many people have heard of Morgan Edwards here? No one. Okay. He was born in 1722 through 1795. He was a Baptist. How many of you have gone to a college or university or been on site at a college or university? How many of you have grown up in uh, uh, maybe the Boston or the Cambridge or any of those areas, right? Maybe even outside of that area, Connecticut. Or he is the one that founded Brown University. 
Brown University. Edwards believed in a distinct rapture three and a half years before the start of the millennium. Edwards wrote his first pre-tribulation beliefs in 1742, and he published them in 1788, and they are still in the library, and you can go to Brown University and pull that from the archives. He taught the following about the rapture. Allow me to, again, these are all extra-biblical, just because that's the, the rub. They'll say, well, the history doesn't. Well, no history does. Seek and thee shall find the distance between the first and second resurrection will be somewhat more than a thousand years. I say somewhat more because the dead saints will be raised and the living changed at Christ's appearing in the air. And this will be about three and a half years and a half before the millennial. And we see thereafter, but will he there abide in the air all the time? No, they will ascend to paradise or to some of one of those of many mansions in the father's house and to disappear during the foresaid period of time. The design of the retreat and disappearing will be to judge the risen and changed saints. For now the time has come to the judgment must begin, and that will be at the house of God. 1 Peter 4.17 is what he's really quoting at the latter end of there. Notice Edwards makes uh, three essential points to consider. One, he clearly separates the rapture for the second coming by three and a half years. We believe seven, because Daniel talks seven. Two, he uses modern pre-tribulation rapture verses. He used John 14, 2, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. And third, he believed that the judgment seat of Christ, we call that the Bema Seat, or the rewarding banquet, for believers will occur in heaven while the tribulation reigns on earth. Boy, oh boy, does it get any more pre-trib than that? And yet, this is all before 1830, Darby. All before 1830. And honestly, if you would have seven years ago, eight years, maybe even ten years ago, you would have turned and said to somebody, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, they'd have said, yeah, okay, you could plain it all in scripture. But when they asked you for a historical proof, we went, I don't know. I never looked at the early church father, what they wrote about this. And yet, when we actually study it now and we've gone back, I mean, seventh century, fourth century, sixth, I mean, it's remarkable. But isn't that what we're finding in these last days? More and more proof. It's not less. It's actually more proof. God keeps, whether it's archaeology in Israel, they just keep digging and they find stuff. And the idea is that we can be without excuse. That's, that's why God is pouring this favor out that way, right? And there's several other pre-trib, uh, you know, 1687, several others. We just don't have time this morning. But I think the point and the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture is that it's not a recent event. No one ever, you know, the idea, no one ever taught it by 1830 is overused. It's a straw man argument. And I think now, apologetically, you can come back and you can help direct those people that may be stumbling because for them, maybe they're new to the Bible. Maybe they've never really read the Bible, but maybe they look to man's wisdom or intellectualism and they're saying, where has this ever been practiced? You can now draw them to those Extra biblical, and then while you're doing that, guess where you draw them next? The Bible. The Bible, the truth, okay? So we're going to stop there this morning. Um, you know, God's going to use the rapture to accomplish his promise. Um, and if you're sitting here saying, but why doesn't it say, you know, specifically how it's supposed to, I, I encourage you to just review the harmony of scriptures we looked at here this morning. They all speak to the rapture and they speak to the parousia, the second coming. You either believe the word of God or you don't. You don't. Will you stand and pray with me? Next week when you, um, when you come back, if the Lord should tarry, and I say it that way because as we just read and studied this morning, he can come at any time. There's nothing else got to be fulfilled prophetically. 
Uh, we're taught the doctrine of intimacy of Christ's return, and we ought to live that way. Even Brother Delcino got that, right? So if that's true, and we know it to be true, we should all be taking a stand. We should all be living like it. We shouldn't be worrying about, you know, pursuing happiness. Not that there's anything wrong with being happy. I have joy. You have joy. Joy is a good thing. But I think the most important thing is we understand our purpose here on earth. I don't want to see a single person go through the Great Tribulation. Not a single soul. Not one. One is too many. And we have an opportunity in the last days, in the last time, in the last moments we have on earth here to tell people this truth that they don't know. As we read, a strong delusion is coming. I believe it's already here. It's already here. I mean, biologically, people can't figure things out anymore. You know, look 18 inches down. You can solve that equation pretty quick. But that's what a strong delusion does. That's what spiritual blindness does. And you know what? Before we get cocky and arrogant, we better remember where we come from. Not one of us has arrived here. And there's a whole lot of people that need the gospel and the same hope that you and I have this morning. Father, as you just overheard, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your scripture, your holy word. I pray even now, Lord, that you will begin to move and ordain and create divine appointments, Lord, for this message to go forward, for your gospel to go forward, using your saints here right now, losing the saints all around the world, Lord that they would just open their mouth with pure love and pure humility and just be able to give a defense for why they have the hope that they have, Lord. Father, you've told us not a single person knows when this rapture is coming. Father, you do. You know. And you told us, be ready. So, Lord, let us be busy about your business. Let us be busy drawing people to you. Let us be busy setting captives free, Jesus, you doing that, and us pointing them to you. And let us be busy leaving the consequences to you, not worrying about how we do it, just faithfully engaging and running the race you've called us to. Lord, again, please strengthen us. In these last days, strengthen us that we, Lord, we would keep our eyes on you, Jesus, that we wouldn't get distracted with uh, possessions, materialism, Lord, anything. Lord, I thank you that it looks like you're moving, that you're, you're going to provide the finances for the land. You're going to provide all that. But Lord, may that never become a distraction for us. Lord, we pray even right now, protect us against that. We do that so more people can come in and be discipled. But Jesus, that's to draw them to you, not away from you, Lord. So protect us from that, Lord. Don't let us be like, I don't want to name things, Lord, but Others that have got consumed with building projects instead of consumed with the Savior. Lord, may we reach a lost and dying world for you. Give us the words to speak, Lord, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And we ask all of this in your holy, your precious, your mighty, and your beloved name, Lord. The name above all names. Jesus Christ. And all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you all. I love you. And have a beautiful day in Christ Jesus.